Good morning. To those of you who don't know me, I'm Ryan Chase, and I'm another one of the elders here. And I want to invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. You know, when things go wrong in life, two of the most important questions to be able to answer are always, what is the actual problem and what's the remedy? What's the solution to that problem? And and that's true whether the problem is financial or relational or social or medical or political, whatever it is, you have to first be able to diagnose what the problem is before you start trying to fix it. And if you can diagnose what the problem is, well, then the cure is only as good as having the right solution. You have to actually address the real problem with the right remedy. And in our world, this fallen world in which we live, maybe you've noticed, there's very little agreement regarding either of those questions. Very little agreement as to what the actual problems are in the world, and very little agreement about what the solutions to those problems are. Are. But in this letter to Christians in Rome, the, the Apostle Paul has been setting forth the gospel of Jesus Christ as the gospel, the good news for all nations, all peoples of the earth. This is good news for the entire world. This world on which we live in our flesh and blood, this gospel is good news for all the nations of this world. And the gospel is not primarily about how individuals can go to heaven when they die. It's the good news that God is saving the world, as in humanity. God is saving the world. He's saving humanity in and through Jesus Christ who died for sinners. And of course, for God to save humanity means that God saves humans. So it is good news for individuals, but it's good news for individuals who are caught up into what God is doing for the world. You you get that? God is saving the world. And back in Romans 5, I think of Romans 5 kind of like a a summit, a mountain peak from which you can just see for miles and miles in all directions. Romans 5, you ascend to that summit, you can look back over human history, and you can look out around you and see the expansive misery and destruction and death caused by the sin of one man, Adam. You see everything that comes from that. But from that same mountain peak, you can also look out and see that the grace of God overflows and abounds much more through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ. God's grace through Jesus overflows and abounds much more than all of the sin and misery caused through the disobedience of Adam and all humans since him. So this gospel Paul's holding out is the remedy. It's the answer for the entire world and all of our problems because it deals with the deepest problem, which is our sin against God and the death that comes to us because of sin. But it's, it's an exclusive gospel. It claims that Jesus Christ alone is the hope, the only hope for the world. Jesus Christ alone is the hope for all humanity. And Clearly, not everyone agrees with that. Some hold out hope that humanity can save itself. 
We, we can save ourselves through our own willpower, through our own efforts at self-improvement, through social justice, through political activism, through education reform and legislation and government spending, and we, we can really pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've got this. The problem is that those who cling to any other remedy for the world's problems other than Jesus do not understand just how sinister human sin really is. Our problem's so bad, we, we can't legislate our way out of it. We can't spend our way out of it. We can't educate or recycle or protest our way out of it. The only hope for individuals, for nations, for the world, is to repent, to turn to Jesus in faith and the church of Jesus Christ exists in the world to hold that message out. Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world. And all of that, Romans 7 is pointing us back to that. The whole letter points us back to that again and again. So I want to invite you to look with me at Romans 7, 7 through 13. And if you're physically able, would you stand with me out of our high regard for God and His Word What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Every word that comes from your mouth, we believe, we trust, we receive, we, we believe that this is for us, for our instruction, for our edification, for our joy, for our perseverance, for our faith. And so we pray that you would have your way in us through your word as your spirit brings life to us in union with Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I think a helpful way to unpack this text in Romans 7 is to think of it as a, a legal defense. And like any legal drama, questions are asked and answered as you go, and things become clear in the end. There's resolution at the end. And that, that's how I want to proceed through this text, looking at the crime the culprit, the means, and the result. The crime, the culprit, the means, and the result. First of all, the crime. 
Seven times in Romans 7, Paul speaks of being dead. I'll just give you a few examples. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. There's death. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, sin deceived me and killed me. There are three, there are four more. Death, a death has occurred. And when a death happens, if it's not obviously natural means, some investigation follows. What's the cause of death? What were the circumstances surrounding the death? A death has occurred, but first we have to clarify who exactly died? Who is Paul talking about here? Romans 7, perhaps you're familiar with this chapter, it is intensely debated. And the debate primarily surrounds the question, who is the, this person referred to by the personal pronoun I? When Paul says I, who is he talking about? And in our text this morning, there are basically three different views. One is that I is referring to Adam in the garden. When God made Adam, put him in the garden, gave him the law, don't eat from the tree, Paul's referring to Adam. That's one view. The second view is Paul's talking about Israel and the law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And the third view is that Paul's talking about himself, that this is autobiographical. And there are things to like about each of those views, and we're not going to get down into the weeds of all of the, the exegetical arguments for and against each of those. There are things to like about each of them. There are some problems with all of them. I, I think that the most straightforward reading of this, if you come to it, Paul hasn't given us any clue he's talking about Adam or Israel. I, I think he's talking about himself, but I do think he's talking about his experience under the law in a way that is representative of other people's experience under God's holy law. In particular, the experience of all the Jews, all the people of Israel who lived under the law of Moses that was given from God at Sinai. So in a sense, I would say it's all of the above. Paul's story is the story of every Israelite who lived under the law. And Israel is a kind of corporate Adam, we might say. God put Adam in the garden, blessed him, gave him a commandment, and Adam failed. Israel put Israel in the promised land, blessed them, gave them his law, and they failed to obey him, right? So Israel's like a, a national Adam. So Paul's experience, I think he's talking personally, but his experience under God's law represents everyone's experience under God's law. Secondly, we, sh we should clarify this death that Paul is talking about is not a physical death, but the condition of spiritual death. He just said in verse 5 that we saw last week, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So put those two things together. You see that while we were living in the flesh, physically alive, sin is at work producing the fruit of death. So we're alive in one sense and we're dead in another sense. And regarding this fruit for death, Paul said back in chapter 6, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So the fruit of death. This spiritual death is a condition in which you're, you're physically alive in the world, but your entire way of life is it's shameful. Paul says doing things that you're ashamed of now. I mean, there's a reason that when People sin, they, they try to hide it, they lie about it, they do it in secret, they do it at night. They have to get drunk to do it because they're so embarrassed about it otherwise. It's shameful, it's destructive, it's antisocial, 
It destroys relationships and other people and self. That's the condition of spiritual death. And so death is the human condition. And when there's a death, questions are raised. And the first question is, who done it? What's the cause? Who's the culprit? What is the cause of this death? Look at verse 7. Paul asks, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Paul's anticipating here a possible misunderstanding of the gospel that he preaches, objections that might be raised in response to what he's been laying out. The, the gospel Paul preaches clearly denies that anyone can be justified, can be made right with God, can be forgiven of their sins through the law that God gave to Israel, through Moses. Paul just said in verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, that is the law, so that we might serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So a Jew might hear that and think, well, this guy's really got a problem with the law. God's word that God revealed with smoke and fire on a mountain in power. What is his problem with the law? Well, Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No human being can be justified, can be right with God through the law. He said in chapter 6, 14, you are not under law, but under grace. Not the law, but grace. And so, a possible question that comes up in the mind of a Jew hearing this might be, so this message you're preaching, that people can be right with God by grace and not through the law, are you saying that the law is sinful, Paul? Are you saying the law is bad? That obeying God is actually sin? Because if, if that's what you're saying, then that's a deal breaker. Obviously, whatever you're preaching is, is false. The implications of this, if, if that's what Paul is saying, would be extremely serious. What would that imply about God who gave the law? Well, if the law that God gave is bad, that implies that God is bad or incompetent or cruel. If God's law is the problem, then God himself cannot be trusted. And if that's what Paul's saying, then we've got problems. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law the thing that kills us, that causes our condition of spiritual death. And Paul says, by no means. That is an emphatic denial. Absolutely not. No way is God's law at fault. It's not God's law that causes spiritual death. In court, a possible defense strategy is to identify an alternative suspect. So a defense lawyer might say, all right, my, my client is on trial, accused of this crime, and, and the way we're going to convince the jury that my client did not do it is to show them who did actually do it. And studies show that that's a really effective way to win over a jury. If you can show more convincingly that all the evidence points in another direction, that's effective. The informal term for that is TODDI, T-O-D-D-I. You know how in law you've got all these fancy Latin things? This one just stands for, this other dude did it. <laughs> and if you can show that this other dude did it, then clearly the defendant did not do it. And, and that's the strategy Paul takes here. 
He shows God's law is not the culprit. God's law did not cause our condition of spiritual death because the real culprit is sin. Not God's law, but the evil power of sin that produces spiritual death. In Paul, in Israel, in all humanity, sin is the problem. Paul frequently personifies sin. And just look at all of the action taken by sin. Sin is the culprit and sin is doing a lot of stuff in this text. Verse 8, sin produces all manner of covetous desires. Verse 9, sin comes alive or springs to life. Verse 11, sin deceives and sin kills. Verse 13, sin produces death. So sin is busy doing all kinds of destructive things and ultimately causing this condition of spiritual death. Sin is the perpetrator. Sin is producing death. And since sin is the real culprit, then Paul can consistently maintain God's law is emphatically not the problem. It's not sinful. And he can at the same time preach, you can't be right with God through adherence to the law. He's not saying the law is the problem, but he does maintain you can't be right with God through the law. Look at his conclusion in verse 12. So the law, that so is a, therefore, here's a conclusion. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's piling up these positive descriptions of God's law. In fact, according to verse 10, the commandment promised life, which means the law is generous. It's gracious. It actually held forth a gracious, undeserved offer of life to all who would trust God. God never gave Israel a system of legalism where they were supposed to try to earn and deserve some payment from God, to create some debt where God owed them something. The law was an unmerited promise of life to all who would rely on God. Verse 14, Paul goes as far as calling the law spiritual. It's from the Spirit of God. It gets at the heart. It's spiritual. It's impossible to imagine any higher praise or commendation for God's law than what Paul says in this text. The law of God should be completely exonerated from any accusation. God is not trying to trick humanity into some sinful way of living, some legalistic system. The culpable cause of spiritual death in the world is sin. But that raises an, another question about the means. If sin is the culprit, what were the means used? What was the weapon? What was the instrument? How exactly does sin cause death? Look at verse 7 again. Right after he denies that the law is sinful, Paul says, yet, or Nevertheless, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So, so there is some relationship here between sin and death and the law of God. What, what's that? In what sense is the law actually involved in all of this? What kind of role did the law play in bringing about spiritual death? And the answer is repeated throughout this text twice in verse 8 and verse 11. Paul says, sin works by seizing an opportunity through the law. Seizes an opportunity through the law. 
He says in verse 8 that sin is dead apart from the law. In verse 9, sin springs to life through the commandment. So he keeps using this kind of language through the law, through the commandment. Verse 11, sin killed me through the commandment. Verse 13, sin produced death through what is good. So sin is doing something through God's law. The the law is the instrument. It's it's the weapon that sin uses to produce death. Sin is the perpetrator. The law is the murder weapon. How does that work? How does sin use the law to produce spiritual death? Well, to start with, at a minimum, the law defines sin so that you know where the boundary is between right and wrong. Paul says this twice in in verse 7. First he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he gives a specific example. If, uh, for I would not have known what it is to covet, he's citing the 10th commandment here, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Which sounds a lot like Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By God's law, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. But, But knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong doesn't kill you. It's not a bad thing, is it, to know what God requires, to know this is good and that's evil? That doesn't kill you, so there's, there must be more. The law also brings the knowledge of sin in the sense that it causes you to know that you are guilty. It convicts you. Paul said in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law so that Every mouth may be stopped, shut up completely, no defense, no plea to enter except guilty as charged, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So that's part of it. The law convicts you, but I think there's more. The the law defines what's right and wrong. It convicts you that you are guilty of doing wrong, and the law actually provokes sin or increases sin. Paul says in verses 8 and 9 here in chapter 7, apart from the law, sin lies dead. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, sprang into action. So sin is like a virus. You know the difference between virus and bacteria? A virus is technically not alive on its own. On its own, it has no ability to move, no ability to reproduce, no ability to gather energy. It needs a host. And when it finds a host cell, it injects itself, injects its information and takes over the host cell, uses the host cell to reproduce itself and get all that it needs, destroys that cell, causes death there, and just spreads like crazy. It sounds a lot like how Paul describes Sin, just like a virus, sin lies dormant, and it finds in the law a host. When the law arrives, sin springs into action as this deadly, infectious force. We saw last week in in verse 5 that Jordan preached, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Somehow the law arouses sinful passions. Our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And then this week, Paul says, verse 8 and verse 11, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to produce covetousness. It works through the commandment to 
deceive. It works through the commandment to, to kill. And, and the word translated there, opportunity, is a word that refers to like a base of operations from which other things can be launched. So like a base from which you could launch an expedition or a bridgehead from which you could launch a military attack. So sin grabs hold of God's law and sets it up as a base camp to ascend to staggering heights of evil. The law says, do not covet, and sin seizes that as a perfect opportunity to exalt itself. God's law says, do not covet, and sin says, hold my beer. Take that challenge. Right there, that's what I'm going for. It's significant that Paul specifically refers to the 10th commandment in verse 7. You, you shall not covet. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Those are bookends to the law. Have you ever thought about the fact that they're both getting at the same thing? The first one says you shall not worship anyone or anything else. And the last one says you shall not desire anyone or anything else. Worship God with all of your being. And in Colossians and in Ephesians, Paul explicitly ties those two together and says covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. To desire anyone or anything else more than God is idolatrous. So, so this is the opportunity sin seizes. This is how sin hijacks God's law. The, the law is holy and righteous and good because it comes from God. And so it reveals to you what God is like. It reveals to you God's character. It reveals to you God's ways. It calls you to worship God and delight in God. The law says to you, God is supremely satisfying. Don't desire or worship anyone or anything else. And sin finds that to be the perfect opportunity to deliberately, flagrantly exalt you over God. If this is what God has said, then to deliberately contradict that is the perfect opportunity to oppose God. I mean, whenever you choose to disobey the law, aren't you exalting yourself over the law? Isn't that why we say things like, nobody is above the law? To be above the law means the law doesn't apply to me. So when you choose to reject the law, you're saying, I am above the law. And if the law is the perfect revelation of the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the character of God, then when you break his law, you're saying, I am God. I'm above him. I don't listen to him. I rule my life my way. So God gave a good law. And one author says it's like God's law is like this train track laid down meant to pull the train of your life powered by the engine of faith. As you trust in God, you're pulled along that track to life. And sin says, let me take that train track and stand it upright and use it as a ladder to climb up above God himself. The law is what sin seizes. So remember, none of this means God's law itself is the cause of death. Sin is. You come to God's law and you think the law is the problem. You're like the detective who walks into the crime scene and picks up the gun, throws it in the bag, and says, we have our suspect. The gun is the murder weapon, but who pulled the trigger? Sin did. And that raises one more question. What's the 
result of all of this? What's the resolution? What's, what's the reason for this? Why would God ever give sin such a weapon? I mean, didn't God know this was going to happen? Why would he have given a good and righteous and holy law that sin could just seize? If we're not careful, we could get the wrong impression that God miscalculated, that he inadvertently gave sin some advantage by giving his good law. Was God incompetent? Was God negligent? I mean, is this kind of like the, the criminal who wrestles the police officer's gun out of his own hands? That's how he got the gun. He took it from the police officer. It's God's law, and sin seizes it and uses it to do all this, cause all this death. Why would God give the law to sinners if the law would only give sin this opportunity to produce more and more death? Look at verse 13. There, there is a purpose here, and it's not sin's motive, but God's purpose in all of this. I'm going to read from the NIV because I think it translates better the, the, the purpose words in the text. Look for the phrases, in order that and so that. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So there it is, purpose, stated twice so you don't miss it. Sin produced death through the good law, and God has a purpose in this. So that sin might be exposed as sin, that it might be recognized in order that sin might become appallingly, hideously sinful, and that you would see that through God's good commandment. The law exposes sin in all of its horror, that when those who live under God's good law, take that law and refuse to rely on God by faith and instead insist on rebelling against God directly, this crystal clear special revelation of himself and his ways, sin is then manifested in its worst possible form. It is high-handed and flagrant and deliberate disobedience. Remember Romans 5, look at verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So, so sin has been here since Adam, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So all people in the world have been sinning ever since Adam, but Paul differentiates sin and transgression, and he says, not everybody's been sinning like Adam did. Or we could say, like Israel did. Because not everybody was sinning in this kind of way, deliberate disobedience of God's revealed law. Listen to Hosea 6, 7. Speaking of Israel. But like Adam, they, Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Th that can really only be said about Adam and Israel. They transgressed deliberately, knowingly, consciously, intentionally what God had revealed. And that takes sin to another level. Deliberately doing what is forbidden is the pinnacle of self-exaltation. But still, the question remains, why, why was that God's purpose? Why would God want that to happen? 
I find it helpful to think of it like, like this. A, a drug task force, I talked to Nelson Leecraft this week to make sure I'm thinking about this right and this stuff actually happens. A, a drug task force might be watching a known drug user to follow them back to the dealer. They watch a house enough and they know that house is dealing. But that's a pretty low-level dealer, and they know dealers get their supply from a supplier higher up the chain. So they might not arrest that dealer in order to follow that dealer back to the supplier. They might let them go for a time in hopes we'll track them and their acquaintances and their phone to find the supplier. And then if they're patient, they might not even take down that supplier. They might go further up. Nelson told me that Sioux Falls Drug Task Force last year did this all the way back to a cartel in Sinaloa, Mexico and got the DEA involved and took down the ranch. Out of Sioux Falls? That's incredible. So they were after the head of the snake. They knew you could cut off the tail here, but what is that really going to do? They went after the head to cut that off. Likewise, by giving his good and holy law, God gave sin the, the perfect opportunity to commit the most heinous crimes. And why? So that he could crush the head. The head of the serpent through Jesus on the cross. When Galatians 4.4 says, when the fullness of time had we know God had a timing for all of this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, committing all of these sins. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, who scripture says is the fullness of deity in human form, and he sent his son to bear the fullness of God's wrath against the fullness of human sin. The fullness of God's wrath against the fullness of human sin for the fullness of your salvation. We sing those words, ours is such a full salvation. You can be assured God has dealt with your sin all the way down to the root. That's why you have to be united to Jesus in a death like his so that all of your sin is left with him in the grave and then you are joined with him, raised to life, leaving all of that sin behind. God deals with sin completely in Jesus. And so Paul can simultaneously hold up the law is good, it is righteous, it is holy, and he can insist you cannot be saved by your own effort. You can't earn salvation by keeping the law. Salvation is a gift that God gives through Christ. If the thing that you were trusting in to cure you ends up killing you, you need a different cure. If the thing you thought was a lifeline thrown out to you is wrapped around your neck to strangle you, you need another way. God's law is good. It just can't save the world. Only Jesus can. Morality without Jesus is death, whether that's individual, you're trying to improve your life. If there's some sin you're stuck with, you're trying to, you know you need to change and you're trying and trying and you can't and you're just telling yourself, just stop it, just stop it, just stop it. You need Jesus. It's true at the national level. We know something's messed up. What do we need? We need Jesus. People need to repent and turn and put their hope in Jesus. The law can never be the solution to humanity's problem of sin and death, but God has made a way through his son, Jesus. And Paul's personal experience as an Israelite living under the law serves as a warning to all nations, including ours. Don't place your hope 
anywhere other than Jesus. And just listen in closing to these words from Ezekiel chapter 5. God addressing the nation of Israel. Think about Romans 7, Paul's experience under the law. Listen to Ezekiel 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. God's law given to Israel exposes sin in its worst form, and God set Israel right there in the center of all the world to be an example. So we would all look at Israel and go, don't do that. Turn to the Savior God provides doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her, more sinful than all those other nations. Why? What made them more sinful than all the other nations? For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. You didn't even live up to the moral standards of those countries. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst and in the sight of the nations. Jumping down to Ezekiel 5.15, You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So Paul's experience under the law as a Jew is a warning. It's just saying to the world, look at Jesus. He is your only hope. Don't put any trust in yourself or your own ability to be good on your own. If, if sin produces death through God's law, then the law can't save you and you have to be made right with Jesus, with God through Jesus alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your Son, the fullness of God in human form, to bear the fullness of your wrath against the fullness of our sins so that we might be completely saved. And God, may we heed the warnings that we would not respond to your good word in any kind of self-righteousness, trying to exalt ourselves, make much of ourselves, that we would not respond to your word in sinful rebellion and resistance to your word. Oh God, would you pour out your spirit who now regenerates human hearts as your gospel is preached? Would you do that in our hearts, that we would be a people who loves and delights in your word, people who know Obedience isn't the problem. It's sin. It's our flesh. And now we've been joined to Jesus that we might walk in the new way of the Spirit. Would you produce more and more of that for your glory and for our joy?